Hey everyone, a new U.S. history episode is coming next week, but in the meantime, I wanted to share with you one of my water cooler episodes. This is the content that my Patreon members are getting every week, y'all. I break down that week's news by telling them three things you need to know about, two perspectives on an issue, and one prediction for the upcoming week. The tiers on Patreon start at $3 a month for people in education and $5 a month for everyone else. It's totally worth it, I promise. Also, if you're listening to me right now, like you're listening to me for a reason. Clearly you like my podcast because you're playing it in the car or while you work out or whatever. So even if you don't need me to break down the news for you, Patreon is a great way to just show your appreciation for all of the free content that I create in my free time from my full-time job as a teacher and my other full-time job as a mom. Is the guilt trip working? I hope so. Anyway, enjoy today's episode where I give you some background on Hong Kong, Israel banning Democratic Congresswomen, Planned Parenthood and Title X, the fight between the Proud Boys and Antifa, and a look into the New York Times 1619 Project. If you like what you hear, then go to www.patreon.com slash anti-social studies to sign up. Thanks. Welcome to the water cooler for the week of August 18th, although I know today is actually August 20th. So this is the first week of school and it's been insane. It's been great, but super busy. So that's why this episode is coming late. If you follow me on Instagram, you saw that yesterday on the actual literal first day of school, I had to bring my two-year-old to work. So everyone was amazing. The kids were so sweet, but needless to say, I didn't actually get a lot of extra work done. So with that being said, this episode is coming a little bit late and you can expect my episodes from here on out, my water coolers to come out more like Monday, Monday at some point in the afternoon, as opposed to Sunday. That's just for me to preserve my family time in the weekend so that I can hang out with my husband and my son all day on Sunday. And then I will work on and put out the water cooler on Monday unless things get crazy. And then on Tuesdays, but they're still going to come every week. Don't you worry. All right, let's jump right into it, because a lot of big things have been happening. A lot of clashes this last week or so. Okay, I'm inserting myself here after I've recorded the whole episode. This episode came out way longer than I was intending, but I think all of the topics are really important. But I'll help you out if you're interested in just certain things. The first thing we're going to talk about is Hong Kong. The second thing we're going to talk about is Israel banning members of Congress, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. So if you're interested in that, you can skip to minute four minutes, 30 seconds. The third thing that we're going to talk about is Planned Parenthood um, refusing Title X funding. So if you want to hear about that, skip to minute. 10 minutes, 35 seconds. And then we're going to look at two perspectives on the recent clashes in Portland between the Proud Boys and Antifa. So if you're mostly interested in that, skip to minute. 14 minutes, 4 seconds. Okay, thanks. Back to the episode. First, uh, the protests in Hong Kong are still going on. Uh, You can go back to an earlier episode, if you remember, um, they started over this controversial extradition bill uh, that would allow, basically make it a lot easier for mainland China to extradite Hong Kong citizens back to China to go to trial, and China's justice system is garbage. So the Hong Kong people said, no thank you. Uh, But now these protests have evolved into a broader movement demanding more independence from China. This is going to way oversimplify it, but if this helps you, Hong Kong is to China kind of like what Puerto Rico is to the United States. Kind of? 
Is that helpful? I'm not sure. But essentially, Hong Kong is pushing for more political independence, especially considering that for a lot of the time when they were a protectorate of Britain, they were given a lot of independence. And now China is kind of slowly trying to take away a lot of that and absorb them back into mainland communist China. Uh, The protests have grown. There have now been violent episodes between protesters and the Hong Kong police. Um, There are also some concerns that China might be sending some of its own people in disguise, possibly to provoke violence. So they might be sending people to infiltrate the protesters and then commit violence, possibly as a justification to get more involved. That hasn't happened yet, but that's a concern. Uh, This is kind of like what Vladimir Putin did in Crimea in that that region of the Ukraine a few years ago. Um, And he did that to then justify sending in Russian troops and take Crimea, which he did. Last week, protesters shut down the Hong Kong airport um, after a video surfaced of police brutalizing a protester. During that sit-in at the airport, the protesters then resorted to violence against police officers. So as this protest movement is ongoing, just know a few things. It is leaderless. So in this way, it's sort of like the Occupy Wall Street movement. You could interview five different people and they might tell you five different reasons that they're protesting. But in general, the, the main demands that have emerged are they want to completely withdraw the extradition bill. Uh, the government has essentially tabled it and said, OK, we're not going to discuss it, but they want it removed completely. They want the leader of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, to step down. They want an inquiry into police brutality, so more accountability for the Hong Kong police. They want all the protesters who've been arrested to be released. And then very vaguely, they want greater democratic freedoms. And that means different things to different people. So just keep an eye on it. The second thing. Israel has banned two members of the U.S. Congress from visiting. Um, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar were supposed to go on a state visit. They were going to visit the Palestinian territories to try to draw attention to Israel's treatment of the Palestinians, which they argue is bad. (laughs) This is a whole different issue uh, that we can get into later. You can maybe check out my uh, episode from season one, all about the modern Middle East, where I go into a lot more detail about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, But for now, let's just look at them being refused entry to Israel. So they banned Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, who also just so happened to be the only two Muslim members of Congress, but I'm sure that's a coincidence. Um, Both of these uh, representatives have openly supported the BDS movement. That stands for Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, which is aimed at Israel. So people who believe that Israel is an occupying force, that they have, um, there are people who believe that Israel has illegally divided the Palestinian people and are illegally occupying their territories, most notably now the West Bank. Um, And so they view that in the same way that people viewed apartheid South Africa. This is a similar strategy to anti-apartheid protests in the 1980s. They pushed for a boycott and sanctions against South Africa to force them to come to the table and end the apartheid system. And so members of the BDS movement hope that the same can happen for Israel with its treatment of the Palestinians. Just a personal note about this, a lot of states have adopted policies that are, regardless of your thoughts on the BDS movement, I think 
kind of insane to me. They say that all people who work for the government or who contract with the government have to vow that they will not support the BDS movement. And I know that firsthand because over the summer, I got paid to go train different social studies departments around the Austin area. And when I was sending in all my information to get paid as an independent contractor from these public school districts, I had to sign a a document saying I disavow the BDS movement against Israel. Now, again, your view on Israel or the BDS movement or the Palestinians is totally your own. But to me, that seemed like a problematic thing. Why am I signing this document saying that I have to have this specific opinion about a foreign country to get paid by Eanes Independent School District? Anyway, so the question is, has Israel banned other foreign visitors? Yes, but they've never banned a sitting member of Congress before. And this is a big deal. So in recent years, Israel has routinely detained and sometimes refused entry to foreign visitors who are associated with the BDS movement, Um, but it has also become more emboldened with Trump in office. There's a really tight alliance between Trump and Netanyahu, who's the prime minister of Israel, um, and we've seen Israel drift further to the right, um, which is really creating an issue because a lot of Jewish Americans tend to um, drift towards the left in American politics. And so there's this widening gap between the majority of Jewish Americans and the Israeli government. Trump, just hours before Israel announced that they would not allow um, Tlaib and Omar to come to the country, he tweeted, quote, It would show great weakness if Israel allowed Rep. Omar and Rep. Tlaib to visit. They hate Israel and all Jewish people, and there is nothing that can be said or done to change their minds. Minnesota and Michigan will have a hard time putting them back in office. They are a disgrace. Quote, Just shortly after this tweet, news broke that the Israeli government planned to bar the women from entering, despite the fact that Israel's ambassador to the U.S. had just previously said that they would be admitted out of respect for the alliance between Israel and the United States. So did they ban them because of Trump? I don't know. There definitely were conversations behind the scenes where the Trump administration was asking the Israeli government to do this. Um... Did they make that decision because of those conversations? Who knows? At the very least, they probably made this decision because Trump brought such international attention to it. So probably the Israeli government was going to let these congresswomen visit, visit the Palestinian territories, and hopefully just like it would work through the news cycle in a day or two. But then once Trump tweeted about it and brought all this attention to it, they said, all right, well, now we got to actually do something about it. Anyway, Rashida Tlaib was later granted a personal visit, so a non-state visit, to see her 90-year-old grandmother who lives in the West Bank, but she refused under the circumstances in protest to Israel's treatment of uh, herself and Ilhan Omar. You should just note that what is happening is Trump is trying to, you'll see him using the words like anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, anti-Israel in association with the Democratic Party. What he's trying to do, and I think he's successfully doing with his base, is make it so that the gang, right, AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, and Ilhan Omar, he's trying to make them the face of the Democratic Party. In a lot of ways, they are. They're the face of the new young members of the Democratic Party. But Trump realizes that they are especially polarizing, Uh, frankly, as women of color, I would argue that's a big part of that, that they are polarizing, that there's a lot of members of Trump's base 
who are to some extent scared of them or they don't they really don't like their views. They view them as very extreme. They view them as anti-American because they are coming out and pointing out some of the issues that are ongoing with the United States and some of its uh, foreign alliances. So what Trump is doing right now is he's trying to make the gang for the new face of the Democratic Party. And you're going to see him doing that more and more and more leading up to 2020. Because to a lot of people, Ocasio-Cortez is way more scary than Pete Buttigieg, for example. Okay, the third thing that you need to know is that Planned Parenthood has withdrawn from the Title X program. What is the Title X program? It was passed by Richard Nixon a Republican, by the way, in 1970. It is called Title X, but it is officially the Population Research and Voluntary Family Planning Program. Um, It's part of the Public Health Service Act. And basically, Title X is the only federal grant program that is solely dedicated to providing individuals with comprehensive family planning and related health services. So essentially, this is a federal grant program that gives money to you know local or state programs that are providing family planning services to low-income families or uninsured people, including those who are not eligible for Medicaid. About 4 million patients are served nationwide under the Title X program. They distribute about $260 million a year in family planning grants. Um, And it's been really helpful filling gaps in healthcare access, including cancer screenings, STD testing, annual exams for women, um, and just a lot of those services for women, especially who are poor or don't have health insurance. From the beginning hear me out on this one. From the very beginning, Title X has never provided federal funding for programs that use abortion. I'm going to say that again. Title X from the beginning since 1970 has never given federal money to abortion clinics. But Title X recipients could refer patients to abortion providers until now. So the Trump administration has changed and said that they are not going to give any Title X funding to any program that even refers women to a separate abortion clinic or advises them on abortion. So it's essentially a gag rule that's saying that if you want that federal money, then you cannot talk to your female patients about abortion as an option, and you definitely can't refer them to any abortion clinics. So Planned Parenthood has been the largest provider. They have served 40% of all Title X patients in the country. Most of those patients are Black and Hispanic. And basically what they did before is they just kept their abortion clinics separate. So none of the Title X funding ever went to Planned Parenthood abortion clinics. What they went to was the other parts of Planned Parenthood that provide mammograms or STD screening or whatever. But now, since they can't even refer women to an abortion provider, um, they basically had to choose between keeping the federal money and forcing all of their doctors to stop referring women for abortions or give up the federal funding. And that's what they've done. So they've given up this federal funding, which is going to be huge for Planned Parenthood. They are still open. They are still providing health care for women. They are still referring women to abortion clinics but they're going to lose a lot of money that they really need, especially to keep open very small rural clinics that are often the only ones providing access to women's health care in sometimes entire states. For example, in Utah, the whole state, Planned Parenthood is the only Title X grantee. So if they're forced to close down a lot of their providers, there might be women who are having to drive hundreds of miles to get seen, not for abortions, to get seen for cancer screenings, for pap smears, for whatever. Uh, 
So it's a big issue for Planned Parenthood. We'll have to see. They've sued. We'll have to see how it all shakes out. But I think the the changes to Title X go in effect in the middle of September. So there's not a lot of time. All right. I already know today's going to be a long episode because we got another big thing to talk about. Two perspectives on an issue. And I'm going to tell you right now, I don't think either of these perspectives are great, but I'm going to give you both perspectives so that you're aware of them. So um, recently in Portland, there were a lot of rallies of a group called the Proud Boys, and then there were counter rallies or counter protests by a lot of different members of the left, including Antifa or the anti-fascist movement. So I just wanted to give you a basic introduction into what these two groups are. And I figured the best way to do this was just to read word for word from their websites because, well, you'll see. So first, I went to the Proud Boys website, and I'm probably on a lot of government lists now. So from their own website, and by the way, their website definitely looks like it was made with like an Angel Fire account from 1999, but whatever. I'm going to read to you a few quotes. This is from their intro, their homepage on their website. It's in big, weird yellow letters. The first thing you see is, quote, the world's greatest fraternal organization. So they basically, you know, message themselves as a big frat. Quote, the time for apologies is past. I am a Western chauvinist and I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world. The West is the best. Quote. Okay. So, so they are basically saying that they are done with being made to feel bad about being Western, meaning from like, I guess of European descent. We're going to get into that more. They seem to not fully understand Western history, but whatever. And they claim to be a chauvinist proudly that men should be men and women should be women and each should know their place. And we should go back to the good old days when everyone knew how they were supposed to act. All right. The next quote. The Proud Boys confuse the media because the group is anti-social justice warrior without being alt-right. Western chauvinist includes all races, religions, and sexual preferences, quote. All right, here's where I'm going to have an issue. Because <laughs> as a world history teacher, um, when you say that you are Westerners, what that means, capital W, the West, means Europe and the United States, descended from Europe and the United States. And traditionally... <laughs> That means white and Christian. And so it is true that there are black members of the Proud Boys. Um, I don't know if there are Muslim members of the Proud Boys, but I'm sure there's one. There might be Jewish members of the Proud Boys. You can be gay and part of the Proud Boys. That's what they're trying to say. But to say that the West is the best and we are super proud of Western culture, what that is saying is we're proud of white Christian culture. And it's just a fact. So they seem to be a little confused on their history. I would really love to get all the Proud Boys in a room and maybe get them to listen to my podcast, but that's a goal for another day. Now, finally, another quote. Our group is and always will be, in all caps, men only. And then they specify in parentheses, born with a penis, if that wasn't clear enough for you leftists. But they also have a group for women, which is called the Proud Boys Girls, because, quote, nobody wants men to be men more than the women who depend on them. So I have a lot of issues with this group. Um, I can probably go on a rant for a long time. For now, I'm just going to leave you with those words and just know that that is what they stand for. Um, If anyone, I've seen people tweeting in support of the Proud Boys saying things like, 
um, they're not anti-women or they're not chauvinist. And I'm like, no, they said on their website in all capital letters, we are proud to be Western chauvinists. So that is from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And they have been going around the country, holding rallies. Basically, they are against what they perceive as this new, like soft culture that is too politically correct, that is making white men feel bad about their contributions to history. And really, that means that anytime that anyone talks about things like social justice or recognizing the importance of slavery to American history or recognizing contributions to American history by groups that are not white, um, any of those things, or by recognizing terrible things in history that white or Western culture has done, which like all of season one of my podcast was sort of about, that any of those people are anti-American, they're leftists, and they need to be opposed. That's their platform. Okay. On the other side is Antifa, which is shortened for anti-fascist. And they also, I'm going to say, are a problematic group. Um, And it's important to understand who they are because another thing that's happening right now is that just like Trump is trying and I think doing a good job of making AOC and her group the face of the Democratic Party, he's also trying to make any Democrat or left-leaning person who is protesting into Antifa, which is not true, but it's a very effective rhetorical thing to do. So I'm going to take it from their website. There wasn't like an Antifa.com, but there is a group called the Torch Network, which is an Antifa organization. Um, Their website had so many typos and spelling errors, but whatever. Quote, The Torch Network is a network of militant anti-fascists across, but not limited to, the United States. We are dedicated to confronting fascism and other elements of oppression. We believe in direct action. All right. So they basically follow these, what they claim to be fascist organizations. The Proud Boys would be one of them. They follow them around, and whenever they're holding protests or rallies or neo-Nazi marches or whatever, Antifa goes along, often armed, and they try to prevent those fascist groups from getting their message out. That's what they call, quote, direct action. One thing that they do get right, or right-ish, there are some parts that I think are problematic, but they do get right, for the most part, the definition of fascism. So I'm just going to read this for you, in case you don't remember from world history class exactly what fascism is. Uh, Quote, fascism is an ultra-nationalist ideology that mobilizes around and glorifies a national or perceived racial identity, valuing this identity above all other interests, for example, gender or class. Fascism is marked by its dehumanization and scapegoating of marginalized or oppressed groups. Fascism aims at a militarized society and organizes along military or quasi-military lines, usually with an authoritarian structure revolving around a single charismatic leader. Fascism glorifies a mythologized past as justification for its present ideological stances and as a basis for future organization of society, end quote. So the most famous fascists were the Nazis, right? And so the idea is it is strict vertical hierarchy. You need order, you need competition, you need winners and losers. That is how society should be organized. Um, The person at the top is incredibly charismatic, like Adolf Hitler was. They have an extreme hierarchy that is normally based on loyalty more than anything else. They typically choose a few identifying factors. So in Nazi Germany, it was being Aryan. Um, and having like German heritage. And then they dehumanize other groups like Jews, for example, as the outsiders of that group. And so it's an us versus them mentality. They use the military, they use authoritarianism, they use fear 
to kind of motivate people. And they also, you know, take people and give them a purpose. They say you are special because you are Aryan, for example, and you are better than these other groups. And so they are really impactful. And and it's a really powerful motivating force, especially amongst groups of people who are often poor or who are struggling, like in Germany in the wake of the Great Depression after their loss in World War I. And it's typically um, identifying a group that was previously at the top. So for example, kind of, you know, white or Aryan Germans, but have recently come onto hard times. And so they find a scapegoat. They say the Jews are the reason this happened to you. And so they motivate them that way. Anyway, that's fascism. So Antifa goes around and opposes anyone or any group that they see as fascist. They use this, they use the term direct action, which is a euphemism for intimidation, threats, and violence to prevent these groups from spreading their rhetoric. The modern Antifa grew out of Britain and the British punk scene in the 70s and 80s. Basically, in the 70s and 80s, a lot of these punk clubs started getting infiltrated with white power groups, with neo-Nazis who were going to these punk concerts, and then you started to get punk bands that were neo-Nazi groups. Um, And so Antifa came out of leftist members of those groups and at those concerts who would then fight and oppose those messages from being spread. Um, We also saw it a lot. We saw Antifa rise in Germany in the 90s after Germany was reunited after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and we saw the emergence of neo-Nazism in Germany. We also saw the rise of Antifa groups. In the United States, in the 80s, groups began, but they started um, with what they called anti-racist action groups. They basically believed that racism in the United States was the biggest issue confronting Americans, not fascism. Over time, it has evolved into the more broad fascism, which often then includes racism as part of its rhetoric. So the big question here is what about free speech, right? Um, Because free speech and the First Amendment is a very important part of our country's founding. So according to their website, quote, the Torch Network does not use the state to prevent anyone's free speech. The right to free speech restricts the state from censoring ideas. It does not stop the public from opposing hateful ideas. So basically they say, we're not police. We're not members of, you know, representatives of the government in any way. If I, walking down the street, see a neo-Nazi chanting death to the Jews, I can go punch him in the face. And that's not restricting his free speech, right? You can't just say whatever you want without any consequences. That's their argument. And yes, I might then go to jail for punching a guy in the face, but they argue that that is what's necessary. Quote, Anti-racists and anti-fascists have an obligation to deny a platform to bigots so that they can't spread their message and recruit. So they want to essentially stop the messaging before it even gets out there so that they can't gain more followers. So is every leftist or social justice warrior, quote unquote, a member of Antifa? No, definitely not. Antifa very clearly has a militant aspect to it or a violent aspect to it. So that is, you know, leftists, quote unquote, who are okay with using violence. They'll say direct action, but it's violence to oppose fascist speech. So the vast majority of people that go out to these rallies, like that were at Charlottesville, um, opposing these Unite the Right rallies, are just left-leaning people. They're Democrats or whatever who are there to show their opposition to neo-Nazi groups, but they would not take the step of, quote, direct action, intimidation, violence, threats. Antifa is actually a very small group. They're just very loud, similar to the Proud Boys, for example. 
But what's happening right now is that they're the loudest, they're getting the most attention, and both sides are trying to lump everyone that is like right of center into Proud Boys and everyone who is left of center into Antifa. And that's a problem. So we should probably stop doing that. Anyway. All right. This has been a lot. One prediction. Um, I predict that you're going to hear more if you haven't already about the failing New York Times, quote unquote. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but they put out this thing that is spoiler alert, amazing, called the 1619 Project. Basically, August of 2019, right now, marks 400 years since the first enslaved Africans arrived in Jamestown in August of 1619. By the way, has anyone listened to my first U.S. history episode yet? Because I talk about this. I didn't even know the New York Times was doing this. Man, I'm so on it. So they put out a special edition of the paper that includes just beautiful essays about the black experience in American history. It seeks to reframe American history through the lens of the African-American experience. It's amazing and important. Um, They basically contend that we should really view 1619 as the beginning of America as opposed to 1776, because really, as soon as we brought enslaved Africans to this country, we started creating something unique and problematic, and we need to deal with that history, right? Um, As a history teacher, I'm in love with it, and I'm obsessed with it. For some reason, a lot of conservatives are calling it leftist propaganda and they're rejecting it because somehow talking about slavery is now like Democrats trying to sabotage the country. I honestly don't understand it. I don't understand why teaching about black history or teaching about slavery, which went on for hundreds of years in American history, is in any way offensive to people today. I would argue it's more offensive to not talk about slavery and pretend that it didn't happen. But what do I know? I'm just a history teacher. Anyway, I'll definitely be using it in my U.S. history classroom in a few weeks. I'll let y'all know how it goes. I'm really excited about it. You should check it out too. Even if you don't subscribe to the New York Times, they've made it available for everyone through the Pulitzer Center website. You can just Google 1619 Project and it'll show up, but I'll post a link on my Patreon too. Woo. All right. That was a really long episode. Sorry, y'all. I hope you have a great week. If you're back at school, I hope you have a great first week back at school. Make sure that you're following me on Instagram and Facebook. Spread the word about my Patreon page. And if you haven't already, check out episode one of US History. It's all about colonial America. And it was way more interesting than I thought it was going to be. I was totally prepared for it to be very boring. And I actually was like really into it. So you should go check it out. Thanks and have a great week.